R&B, hip-hop status, true more or less, jazz classical type hits, that's the side effect, yeah, but internationally loaned to play the best hits, independent radio spins, non-politic, filled with all types of advice, inspiration through the daily groove that bring moods, pumping straight flavor, Nicki Minaj and a Teddy Riley, so grab your champagne and vibe, meet you in the lobby, side effects of poor groupers, radio blast rise, from Monday to Wednesday, Thursday to Friday, 7 p.m. so keep it tuned on the fly day, the side effect way or the highway, 30 minute in they cool Wednesday, that's Jag on the airway still, the side effect way or the highway, call 323-784-9635, we live, in effect with the side radio, Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of the Psy Effect Radio Show. I am Psy, your host. I want to thank you all for tuning in to the show tonight. I do appreciate you. I know you could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to hang out with me, your girl, and for that, I thank you. Tonight on the Psy Effect Radio Show, I have Just Cause, and Just Cause is here to discuss the wrongful conviction of the IRP. Better known as the IRP Solutions And uh, before we get to Just Cause I want to play this track IRP 6 Needs Justice Pretty much gives you a quick synopsis Of what we're going to be discussing tonight So stay locked and go nowhere We'll be right back with Just Cause Discussing the wrongful conviction Of the IRP 6 Right after IRP 6 Needs Justice No justice No peace Hi, Sam. Hi, Sai. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. I have Ms. Ethel Lopez, Vice President. Hi, Ethel. 
Hi, thank you. You're welcome. And I also have Mr. Cliff Stewart, brother to one of the IRP6 and brother-in-law to two others. How are you doing over there, Cliff? Hi, I'm doing good, so I have up to you. Thank you so much. I want to thank you all for coming on the Side Effect Radio Show and sharing the IRP6 story. Um, when I got an email regarding it, I, I first I was so overwhelmed from what I was reading that I was like, I couldn't believe that I was reading such injustice happening in the United States. And I, I had to be a part in assisting you guys spread awareness and um, the injustice that um, your relatives have endured and friends and family have endured during this process. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Sam, can you take us back to the beginning on how you guys began the IRP solutions? Tell us about that. Okay, uh, thanks, Sai. Yeah, IRP started in February of 2003, and actually IRP Solutions Corporation was developing a software called Case Investigative Lifecycle. Uh, the acronym for it is CILC and, and commonly referred to as SILC. And so this software was de- developed for law enforcement uh, at the federal, state, and local levels, and for major law enforcement types investigations, pre-solutions included the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, New York uh, City Police Department, and, and other agencies like that. And, you know, IRP Solutions, uh, the executives uh, were absolutely convinced that the company was on the verge of closing business uh, with these major government agencies uh, until the business was raided in 2005 by the, uh, by the FBI. Uh, now, you know, as we go back, and, and everyone remembers the tragedy of, of 9-11, and part of the 9-11 Commission report uh, stated that uh, something that con- a major thing that contributed to 9-11 was the fact that law enforcement agencies could not collaborate, they couldn't share information. The uh, 9-11 Commission basically mandated that the government needed to establish a means by which uh, federal, state, and local uh, agencies could share information and collaborate. So that's when they started looking at ways to develop a, a software that would accommodate that. And along with that, the Department of Homeland Security was established. And so IRP Solutions basically stepped up to the call. Uh, the chief architect for the software and the CEO of IRP Solutions was Gary Walker, and he's one of the IRP6. Gary is a genius, an absolute genius when it comes to software development. And when the Department of Homeland Security saw what IRP had developed, they were, they were uh, uh, very impressed to the, to the effect that, uh, all of the agents that were, agencies that were involved with the Department of Homeland Security at that time, uh, you know, really kept pushing for IRP to make certain modifications to the software uh, mm-hmm. so that it would accommodate the needs at the national level. Well, in order to accommodate uh, the request to modify the software, uh, IRP Solutions engaged the services of a staff, of staffing company. They wanted to bring on board basically temporary uh temporary uh, help uh, that had the skills to do software development and testing to mm-hmm. uh, basically move it along and make it to happen really quick. And when the business didn't close as quickly as possible, invoices kind of got behind, and then that's when the allegations came up of, uh, of wrongdoing, basically 
accusing IRP, IRP Solutions of trying to run some sort of scam, which is, you know, there's nothing further from the truth than that. The FBI raid, 20 agents. It took 21 agents. What, what can you tell me about that? It was, um, I don't know, I guess the best word to put it, you know, we were all in shock and traumatized. But, you know, you look at some of the other companies that we've seen on television that have been raided by the FBI, like, you know, you take Enron as one of the largest um, companies that's been publicly, you know, in public, uh, you know, the media where they were raided by the FBI. And when the FBI raided Enron, they went in with two FBI agents. They went to the reception desk. They said, we have a warrant, showed it to the receptionist, and basically asked to see the documentation that they were looking for, were escorted mm -hmm. to the financial department, and, you know, cordially given copies of what they needed. And then they left. And Enron, you know, obviously was a company with somewhere in the area of 50,000 employees. Mm -hmm. They sent two agents saying, hey, you know, this isn't a violent company. We're going to get financial records. We'll send a couple agents in there. They'll get what we want. And then we'll walk out. And we have what we need to continue the investigation. Well, as you stated, 21 armed agents came to IRP Solution. That you know, at that point, there are about uh, somewhere between 15 and 18 employees. So you have a more than one-to-one -one employee to, to FBI agent come in the mm -hmm. building basically with force and arm, with threats and all these things, you know, slamming handcuffs on the, on the tables, uh, saying they're armed, basically took all of the uh, – all the – African-American employees that were there that day and corralled us into the break room and put armed guards on, on each door and saying, even if you want to be escorted to the restroom, you're going to be, I mean, if you need to go to the restroom, you're going to be escorted by an armed agent. And so you look at it and you say, what is the issue going on here? And from our investigation, you know, of the just cause, we found that those type of raids are, uh, you know, pretty much reserved for, you know, drug kingpins or gun runners right. or something like that, you know, violent criminals. And so we're, right. we're, we're like, why are we being treated like this? What's going on? And then to make it worse, you know, they come in, they say, we're looking for financial records between these staffing companies and IRP solutions. And so the executives say, hey, you know, here's a filing cabinet, just like with any other company. You say, we keep our financials in, in, in a filing cabinet. They put that in the middle of the floor saying, Here, here's all of the financial records. Take what you need, get copies, and be on your way so we can continue to do business. Well, they left that filing cabinet sitting in the middle of the floor while they went about, spent 10 hours, 10 hours of a, of a day copying every file from every computer in IRP Solutions office. You're talking all the way from the janitor up to the CEO. They copy everything. And so we're looking at we're like, well, if you're looking for financials, first off, number one, there were signed contracts between the staffing companies and IRP Solutions. So if you were really looking for financials, you could, you could have gotten copies of those contracts, copies of timesheets, copies of, uh, you know, the, the temporary workers, um, you know, personal information. You could have gotten that from the staffing company if that's what you were looking for. All of those things are available from the staffing company. So the coming to IRP and say, oh, we're, we've come here to get financial records, 
there was really no need to do that. But then when they they image and, you know, same thing as copying every computer, it's like, what are you really here to get? What right. are you really after? And we look at it, it's like the only thing we can come up with is that you're trying to get the intellectual property, the silk software. You're trying to get a hold of that and, you know, basically – uh, under illegal means, you know, the the FBI agent that, that uh, wrote the affidavit for the search warrant, Agent John Smith, he wrote the search warrant with uh, information, you know, statements saying this is a purported software company. So basically, you know, this is like a front company. They're pretending like they're creating software, but that's not really what's going on. Well, mm-hmm. prior to him writing his affidavit to get the search warrant from the judge, he had interviewed um, – people at Department of Homeland Security that IRP Solutions was dealing with. He had interviewed people at the New York Police Department that IRP was uh, dealing with. He already knew the software good. And on top of that, there were retired federal agents that worked at IRP as subject matter experts. These subject matter experts had been working there for almost a year. They were actually working there um, for free, saying sell of the software, that's when they were in payment. And the uh, one of the one of the um, of these retired agents actually, you know, wrote an affidavit to Agent John Smith because he reached out to him saying, "Hey, I'm investigating this company. What's going on here? You guys are guys that I can trust. You're federal agents. Mm-hmm. You know how we we do things. You know if you see a front organization. You know when something's going wrong. You retired after 20 years. You you know crime when you see it. So right. we have in a court affidavit." that uh, Gary Hillberry, which is a, 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 a retired Immigration and Customs, um, you know, federal agent, he wrote in his affidavit that, you know, he's working for IRP. He knows that the civil software is viable, that IRP is working on contract with federal, uh, state, and local government. The software is viable for those venues. And after you know, this investigation is done. He wants to stay on because he sees how how uh, lucrative the software could be in mm-hmm. the future. And so you have this federal agent who says, no, there's no, this is no front. There's no crime going on. I'm, I'm a part of this. I see that it's viable and I want to stay on. And yet Agent Smith still comes back with this affidavit that says it's purported software, gets array, puts on, Array with over 20 armed agents comes in, copies everything, corrals all the African American uh, employees into the break room, and you know basically treated us like you know like less than American citizens. And right. it was a uh, uh, the the whole experience, you know, really opened you know I know my eyes as far mm-hmm. as how the federal government. Uh, you know, deals with citizens, and it is not even across the board, to say the least. But when you look at this situation with IRP, the only thing you can think is like, okay, is the federal government conspiring to steal software from a small business? You don't say this is a front organization with all the mm-hmm. evidence on the table that it's not. And, Sai, if I can jump in there uh, to expound on a couple of other things that, that Cliff talked about, uh, mm-hmm. You know, you of, of the matter also from the very beginning, if you look at the pure, you know, essence of, of this case, it's a debt collection case. It's a corporate debt collection case as far as when you try to establish whether or not there was any grounds for prosecution or any grounds to uh, for criminal action at all. There was absolutely no grounds for criminal action. 
there, there it's a company, a startup company that got in debt and got behind on its bills, and there are civil remedies for that. As a matter of fact, there was one uh, uh, one company that was owed monies by IRP Solutions, and they actually, you know, uh, took civil action against uh, IRP. And IRP was prepared to uh, to address that, was prepared to face that because they knew that business was coming. So that was never a question. IRP was totally obligated to meeting its debts, and uh, once you know, once the revenue got flowing. Another thing about that as well is that one company actually went to the FBI and said, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 I uh, am dealing with this company, IRP Solutions, and here's my situation. The FBI in the Denver office took a look at that initially and sent a letter back basically stating that is a debt collection case. We recommend that you take, uh, take civil action against IRP Solutions to remedy, remedy this uh, particular uh, situation. And then also there were two grand juries that were convened. Uh, and this was after, you know, after the raid was actually executed uh, and, and, and they were trying to establish a, a grounds for prosecution. The first grand jury came back and said, this is a debt collection case. Why are we even listening to it? There were grand jurors sitting uh, in, that, in those proceedings who we found later who actually questioned. It's like, so if I don't pay my bills, is the FBI going to come and raid my home? Or am I going to be federally prosecuted? for not paying my bills. The uh, assistant U.S. attorney who was handling this case, assistant U.S. attorney Matthew Kirsch, he was so uh, uh, dead set on prosecuting IRP solutions, he convened a second grand jury. He only called one witness, and that was another FBI agent who was involved in the raid, Agent Moen. And between uh, assistant U.S. attorney Matthew Kirsch and Agent Moen, they came back with a uh, with a an indictment, and you know the the saying is that they can indict a ham sandwich. Well, if you got mm-hmm. the assistant U.S. attorney has the bread, and then the FBI agent has the ham, they put it together and they present it to the grand jury. It's like, hey, uh, we just put this together for you. Uh, now we need you to come back with an indictment. An indictment. That's exactly what happened. And then all the things that proceeded after that, uh, it goes right to what Cliff is stating is that you know they are accusing they being the federal government, is accusing IRP Solutions and the IRP-6 of conspiring uh, to commit fraud uh, when the conspiracy really is uh, the, the federal government and the players involved, Agent Smith, Assistant U.S. Attorney Kirsch, uh, Agent Mullen, uh, Judge Arguello. These folks are, are, in, are trying their absolute best to package this thing up to make it look like IRP Solutions was committing crimes uh, when there was no uh, illegal activity going on. And, Cy, just to expound on what Sam was saying about, you know, the the uh, staffing company that had gone to the FBI and they came back and said, well, mm-hmm. this is a civil matter. Now, that's typically the way that a federal investigation has. You have somebody from the public in this situation, a staffing company, and they reach out to the FBI. The FBI would do their due diligence and say, hey, What's going on here? Do we see any type of federal crime? Well, in, in that situation, when it was sent to the FBI, the FBI came back rightfully so saying, hey, this is a debt case. Go to, uh, you know, small claims court, civil court, deal with the matter, 
collect your, you know, if, if you can't deal with it there, send them to a, a collection agency, deal with it that mm-hmm. way. Well, when you look at the way that this case came about, you see that it, the investigation went backwards because you had um, one of the one of the uh, executives at one of the staffing companies, Susan Holland from ETI Professionals. She reached out to one of her uh, friends at um, Holland and Hart Law Firm up in Denver, and she had you know told Demetrius Harper, who was working, who was one of the IRP six, had told him you know when he when it got to the point where you know, everything was getting in the arrears and bills weren't being paid. You know, either you're going to pay me or I'm going to ruin your life. I'm going to take everything that you have and, and all these, uh, spewing all these threats. And so she goes to her friend at Holland and Hart, um, one of the partners there who was Greg Goldberg. Greg Goldberg, ironically, uh, previously served as assistant, as an assistant U.S. attorney up in the Denver office. He reaches out to his friend, Matthew Kirsch, Who's the assistant U.S. attorney who prosecuted the case? He hands deliver he hand delivers him a package saying this is what you charge these six men with, this is how you go after them. So he he packs this up, gift wrapped it, and hand carries it over to the U.S. attorney's office and gives it to him. And then Matthew Kirsch takes it and gives it to the uh, special agent uh, John Smith and basically saying, you know, go get me something on this company. And so you look at it, and it's like, okay, the whole thing happened backwards. It came from the U.S. Attorney's Office to the FBI, and then they started an investigation off of this information that basically came down this chain of friends. And then to make that even worse, you have Judge Christine Arguello, who presided over the case. She was actually a partner at this Holland and Hart law firm. And and you look at this whole circle of friends calling in favors, and you see how sick the whole system is because even when she was asked to recuse herself because she was too closely connected, she made a statement, well, you know, I only knew Goldberg in passing when I was a partner at Holland and Hart. Well, Goldberg made a statement. They were both, he and Judge Arguello were up for the judgeship at the same time. He made a statement in the Denver Post that said, I know Christine Arguello very well. I believe she'd make a, a great federal judge. And when this when this is presented, to the judge, she says, no, I only knew him in passing. Well, the federal law says that if there's an implication that a judge could be put in a position of a, um, you know, that they have a conflict of interest, if there's there's an implication, that judge should step aside to ensure that, you know, that the the law is carried out properly with no prejudice. This was not just an implication. This is an explicit relationship I used to be a partner at this law firm that's bringing these issues down and hand carrying them to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So you have all these egregious, just um, disgusting acts that happened during this case, and you look at it and say, even from its inception, the whole investigation happened wrong because it started at the top in a vindictive manner and then worked its way down to, to basically, you know, you can call it nothing less than a witch hunt against these six guys. The IRP six consists of five blacks and one white, Gary Walker, David Banks, Clinton Stewart, Kendrick Barnes, Demetrius Harper, and David DePolo. How much right. time how much time did each of the gentlemen received and when will they be released? 
Well, they received from between seven to eleven years on mail fraud and wire fraud, which is which is totally totally insane outside of the fact that, you know, no crime was committed, but then you get these extremely long sentences thrown at them saying, mm-hmm. and, and these are guys with, you know, no criminal background. The worst any of them ever had was a traffic ticket. So there's no criminal background, no felonies from the past. These are all IT mm-hmm. professionals with 20 uh, and 20 plus years of experience, all men who are active volunteers in the community, active with uh, with the with the local church, and so. But you have this vindictive judge that says, "Well, I'm throwing the book at you because you decided to come against the system and not, mm-hmm. um, you know, basically uh, cower away from us and take a plea deal." And so you have you between seven and eleven years, and, and right now the case is on appeal with so many things mostly against what the judge did during the trial. She violated their Fifth Amendment right. She violated mm-hmm. the Speedy Trial Act. She uh, violated their Sixth Amendment right. And, and the Fifth Amendment violation was, you know, basically forcing one of the defendants to get on the stand to testify. The Sixth Amendment violation was refusing um, – the 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 right for an expert witness to to testify in the case and like I said you know it violated the Speedy Trial Act and then the when she when she called a sidebar and told the defendants either you call because some of the witnesses weren't available and uh, to put it into context the prosecutor Matthew Kirsch. He ended his case in, in, in chief about a week and a half early. Well, most of the guys' witnesses for the defense were coming from places like Washington, D.C., because they were with Department of Homeland Security. They were coming from New York, a lot of out-of-state witnesses. Well, you can't, at the spur of a moment, say, hey, I need everybody to change their schedule, jump on a plane, and get here to be a witness. So when when it came down to the time for the defense to call their witnesses, the the guys didn't have all their witnesses available. The judge admonished them and, and pretty much, you know, rebuked them when, in fact, it was the prosecution's fault for ending the case so early. And so instead of her helping and say, hey, you know, the witnesses that are local, let me as a judge reach out to them and tell them, hey, we need you to get here early. You've been subpoenaed. I need you because some of them did not even show up. They were federal employees. They didn't show up in court, and the judge did nothing except tell the defendants, it's your responsibility to get them here. It's like, well, they've been subpoenaed. They've been served. Judge, now it's your place to get in touch with them and basically say, if you don't get here to my courtroom, I will call you in contempt of court and have you arrested. Well, she wouldn't do that. She admonished the, the guys and told them, it's your responsibility to get your witnesses here. And then said, if you don't get your witnesses here, either you're going to take the stand or I will close your case for you. So with that threat, you know, uh, Ken Barnes ends up getting on the stand. Then he asserts his Fifth Amendment right. But during that sidebar where she tells him either you take the stand or I'll close your case, ironically, that part of the transcript is missing. And we've gone through mm-hmm. everything to try to get it, to try to get them to present it. And that is on appeal that you have a missing transcript that shows that the judge broke the law. And the judge is like, well, my recollection of what happened is different. But she won't 
and force the uh, she won't force the court reporter to present the transcript, which would exonerate her if she indeed did the right thing. So we have all these things on the table. The men have been in in prison over a year, and you know in Colorado the uh, the the appeal process has no has no time limit on it. So we're waiting for the appeal to come back. Uh, you know, basically for them to get out because with all these things on the table, there's nothing else that the court can do except say, hey, we got to let these guys out. We got, we have too many issues, too many acts that just happened that should not have for, for this to, uh, for them to may, remain locked up. Now I have a question. You or um, Sam can answer. Do you think this whole scenario could have happened in another state such as Georgia or Florida where there are more minorities? I know your your company, the company was based in Colorado where there's about, what, 7 8% of um, minorities. Do you think that this issue could have happened in another state? Well, you know, Cy, uh, I'll answer that two ways. Number one, uh, because I understand that, uh, that you're uh, from, from, like, Georgia. I, I'm actually originally mm-hmm. from Georgia. And so I understand the, you know, the uh, racial and political makeup of, you know, uh, a, a metropolitan area like Atlanta uh, as compared to Denver and Colorado Springs and Colorado in general. So I answer that question two ways. Number one, uh, I think uh, this case has opened our eyes to the, to the tragedies and, and the corruption and injustice that can happen in the justice system. Uh, there are some things that have happened in this case that uh, we, we basically have, have resigned ourselves to the fact that we were totally naive to it. And we believe that, you know, shows like this and other shows that, that we uh, talk to uh, different hosts and different audiences about is that this can happen to anyone at any time in this nation. That's why folks listening and, and uh, with a platform like yours, which can be heard all over the country, all over the world, actually, you know, people mm-hmm. need to take heed that, that this can happen to you anywhere at all. Now, that's the first part. The second part is that I absolutely believe that the racial and political uh, makeup uh, of uh, Colorado has impacted this case uh, because of the fact that, number one, you have a small African-American company, a startup company, that is a major threat to the large uh, defense contractors. And so – you know, when we're talking about this, uh, the types of contracts that IRP was looking at, it was not, you know, in the thousands of dollars. You know, they, we weren't, uh, the company was not competing for a piece of business where they were going to say, oh, wow, we got a $150,000 contract. No, the first part of this software that the Department of Homeland Security was looking at, uh, it was only one component that uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, asked IRP to refine and deliver basically, was the uh, confidential informant piece. And that piece of the software by itself was $100 million. So, you know, that's a lot of money that uh, yeah. other major uh, defense contractors could not deliver on. I mean, we had oh, – yeah. uh, the government had seen failed, failed initiatives to support and answer the mail, so to speak, uh, to, to help uh, on the war uh, against uh, – the war on terror. Uh, you have the virtual case file solution. You have the Sentinel Project. And the FBI has had to sit before Congress uh, many times explaining their position 
as to why have we spent a billion dollars on stuff that doesn't work. And you have a small African-American uh, startup company that was not presenting in its, in its demos. They, this company was not presenting smoke and mirrors and, hey, here's a, a, a schematic and here's how the software will work. It wasn't that. They were showing real software that was functional. As a matter of fact, uh, the, legitimate, the legitimacy of the business and the viability of the software, the prosecution did not want that to even come out during trial. Uh, there, the uh, prosecution basically uh, uh, stated that, okay, we want to have this software uh, evaluated, and and uh, the prosecution would not allow IRP to select a third-party uh, evaluator of the software. Prosecution said, no, we're going to select the company that's going to evaluate this software. So they selected Califorensics. Califorensics is a company that does work for the federal government. The guy who was doing the analysis, his name is Don Vilfer. He's a retired FBI forensics analyst. He is also a certified fraud examiner. He is also an attorney. He did the evaluation of IRP's uh, Silk software, and he came back and, and stated that this is his report, that there are a lot of companies that, uh, that basically boast that their software can do X, Y, Z, but the software that IRP Solutions has developed, it does exactly what they said it will do, and it is something that would, is, is needed in law enforcement, and it would be a valuable uh, tool to be, uh, to be deployed out to law enforcement all over the country. And, and Mr. Vilfer, his report uh, and those findings were not allowed to be presented to the, to the, uh, to the jury. So, you know, as this case proceeded, the jury did not get a chance to hear a lot of the evidence. They didn't get a chance to hear that the way IRP was conducting business and dealing with uh, staffing companies was legitimate. There was a staffing company uh, here in Denver who was going to testify on behalf of the IRP-6. His name is Andrew Alvarelli, and he's the CEO of Remy Corporation. Remy Corporation is in the staffing business. Mr. Uh, Avarelli was to take the stand as an expert witness, and as Cliff uh, was touched on earlier, uh, the judge would not allow expert witness testimony. As soon as Mr. Avarelli was on the stand and the questioning, and it was understood that he was being presented as an expert witness, prosecution objected. The judge agreed, dismissed Mr. Avarelli without allowing him to say a word. Mr. Avarelli had previously sent a letter to the, to the uh, U.S. Attorney John Walsh, to the office of the U.S. Attorney in Denver, stating that uh, this case had been brought to his attention. He understood, you know, what was going on and that he uh, was willing to testify to the fact that the way IRP was doing business, that there was nothing wrong with it. It was totally above board. They did not want that type of thing out there. So, and I think that that does have something to do with the, the racial element as far as fear. Oh, it, it definitely had something to do with that. So there, there is a lot of uh, a lot of error that occurred in this case. Now, Esso, has it been difficult? Has it been difficult to obtain media attention for this case? Wow, that's an understatement. <laughs> it it has been horrible. I mean, you you it, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, you reach out to people directly. I mean, nobody wants to respond. Nobody wants to touch this case. Nobody. 
and we have a whole um, media team out there that uh, we're we're at Twitter, Facebook, um, all of those different things. We we're we're emailing constantly back and forth, and not just to you know the media, but to to Attorney General Eric Holder's office. We're calling every single day, sending emails, everything. We've reached out to um, um, the Office of Professional Responsibility, you know, the criminal division there in the Department of Justice. We've we've made several trips to Washington D.C and spoken with um, different Congress people there. We've reached out to the Congressional Black Caucus. We reached out to the NAACP, and I tell you, they absolutely suck. They, I mean, the, the NAACP is, is, is helping to fund their organization, so they don't want to touch it. They come back and tell us that this is not a, a racial issue. I, I, anybody can read this thing and see that it's a racial issue, so that, that sucks to, to a whole other level. Okay, we've reached out to Al Sharpton, uh, Jesse Jackson, uh, Congressman Conyers, uh, Congressman Lewis. We've reached out to everybody that we can possibly think to reach out to. We reach out to celebrities every single day, right there, there on Twitter, talking about everything and nothing. And you reach out to them directly, and they will not respond. I got an email back the other day from Gwen Eiffel at uh, um, the um, um, what is it News Hour. PBS NewsHour, and she tells me in the email, uh, you mentioned the word race too many times, so no, we're not going to be able to take this story. Are you kidding me? It is what it is. Why can't you understand that? It is what it is. And, and, and it's stuff like that. And then people that who just simply do not want to respond. It's as if you're asking them to give up their firstborn kid or something. You know, we're, we, we constantly beg people. We're reaching out to other organizations as far as, um, you know, advocacy groups and so forth. And, um, you know, we, we, we've gotten a little bit of, hey, maybe you could check this one. Okay, maybe you can check that one. They're referring you to somebody else. But when it comes to mainstream media, I don't, are they controlled by the big, the big corporations and stuff? That's what we think. So they're afraid to touch it. You know, they're afraid to touch it. So that's what it is. They all completely suck. And it's like, you know, as soon as um, these people are exonerated, after they've given up 20, 30 years of their lives on wrongful convictions, here comes the media. They can't get to them quick enough, you know, to put their little yeah. their little sense worth in and want to take credit for we're the first one to, to, to uh, you know, to, to release this information or to show this. You know, you suck. You come in after these people's lives have been destroyed. What about at the beginning? When this stuff can be stopped, when you can shine a light on this stuff and bring it to the table and let people know who these people are, who they really are, shine a light on them. Their names need to be mentioned. Christine Arguello, Matthew Kirsch, their names need to be mentioned. Eric Holder for sitting there and not doing a jackass thing about what's going on here. President Obama, my 11-year-old granddaughter had written a letter to President Obama at the White House. She wrote a letter begging him to do something about this. And if you tell me that if an 11-year-old kid is feeling this stuff, you know what I'm saying? You know how many families there are with kids out there who are, who are hurting because their parent is not there with them? And nobody cares. And you tell this to the media. You tell this to the celebrities. They go right on as if you've not even spoken to them. They suck. And, you know, Cy, that's when, when, we, uh, when someone like yourself steps up and engages in a situation like this, you know, we're so appreciative of it because of the fact that, you know, you you read the, the information uh, and, and have seen some of the press releases, and you've coordinated with, like, Olivia from our from our uh, team, and, and you see a lot of the holes that we see as well. You know, and even yeah. in some of these situations, 
you know, we haven't asked anyone to uh, to put their neck on the line as far as saying that, you know, I, I, I've known these guys for 10 years and X, Y, Z. No, we've asked folks who do have the platform, folks who do have the, the, uh, the, the, the political uh, wherewithal, so to speak, to execute mm-hmm. an investigation, fire about something, to push, to look deeper into the situation. That's where it gets disheartening. That's where it gets troubling when people have a tendency to just turn a deaf ear and turn a blind eye to it. And, you know, I like mm-hmm. to often say uh, and quote one of the uh, quotes from Bishop Desmond Tutu, and he has stated that if you see an injustice occurring and you do not do anything, you have sided mm-hmm. with the oppressor. And so, you know, when you have situations like that, it, you know, you have to examine yourself. And, and as I stated previously, you know, you asked, you know, uh, if, if this case uh, resided somewhere else, uh, would it be differently? That's why I qualified it by saying that this has opened our eyes to the fact that regardless of where you are, this type of thing can happen. And that's a tragedy. And the, and the greater tragedy is that when you have done the due diligence to, to expose the injustice and dig deep and, and pr- provide the information, I mean, as a just cause, as an organization, we've done the legwork. You know, we've dug in and, 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 and said, hey, here's where the holes are. You know, uh, we're calling for a congressional mm-hmm. inquiry. We're asking for support from the Congressional Black Caucus. We're asking for support from the, uh, quote, uh, leaders of the black community. And, uh, and, and when people do not step up, and, and I remember a day, and, and you know, I, I grew up in the 60s. And so, you know, coming up through the civil rights movements and, and being a product of the, uh, uh, the, the school integration program and that type of thing. Folks back then, who didn't sit back and say, well, uh, that's going to be a violation of my ethics rules as part of Congress, and so I can't look in at it. You know, that's a, that's a bunch of stuff. I mean, you know, it, right. it, 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 it didn't used to be, uh, you know, like it is today where everyone wants to hang their hat on something that would give them an out, where back in the 60s and 70s, you know, everyone was looking for a way to say, hey, I'm in. You know, there's something wrong going on here, and we're getting ready to jump all over this. And so that's the kind of thing where, again, like when folks like yourself, when you engage, you know, uh, we really appreciate it because of the fact that, you know, you do have a platform. And we look at uh, this type of, of, of media now as the new media because the mainstream media, they are so politicized. They are so uh, corporate-driven. And, you know, when you look at under the covers as far as uh, the way uh, uh, all the money flows in, in the corporate world these days, you don't know who you're dealing with. And so, you know, again, we, we appreciate what you're doing on, on behalf of the IRP6 and their family. And, and also, if, I'm, if I might um, add to that just a, just a little bit here, I was reading an article the other day, and, you know, they were talking about the, the, the uh, anniversary of the March on Washington and, and, and how, how, how people are, were just up there speaking just to, to have to have their names out there, just to say that I was a part of that. They, they really weren't talking about anything, and, and nobody, absolutely nobody, brought up anything um, that concerns um, the families that are being destroyed here, you know, uh, uh, due to wrongful convictions and stuff like that. And, and, and they were so on target with, with that article because not one person, John Lewis got up there and he talked about all this crap and how he was there, you know, when, when, in the first March and this and that and whatever. You know, my question is, 
there have been changes, but my God, at this rate right now, you have so many African Americans that are in prison wrongly convicted, it's pathetic. And nobody, nobody says anything about it. The president, he gets up there, and he's about every organization. He's about everybody. I mean, what has he done exactly to, to change my life? I haven't seen anything. I'm telling you exactly how I feel about this. This is totally, totally ridiculous. I mean, you get them, and they go up, and they speak their little piece or whatever. That's for their namesake. That's all it's about. It's for their namesake. But to say, what have I done to have remedied this situation? What have I done about the wrongful convictions? Eric Holder made his little speech about a month ago or so or whenever. There has been absolutely nothing, okay? I want to see something put behind those words. You know, go in there. At least take an opportunity. Take a look at some of these wrongful convictions. We, my, me and a couple um, associates from uh, uh, Just Cause went to a conference in, in Charlotte, um, uh, North Carolina, uh, back in April, you know, with, with uh, for wrongful convictions, people that have been exonerated and, and, and everything, the Innocence Project. And there was over 100-plus exonerees there, and about 95% of them were black people. The years that they spent, we're not talking about five months. We're not talking about two years. We're talking about mm -hmm. 15 years. We're talking about 30 years of their lives in prison. Nobody, you know, and, and it wasn't even a whole lot of media coverage there. You know, that sucks. Of course not. These are people's lives. These are their families. And, and, and where is the justice when you can sit behind a desk with a long black robe on, send somebody to prison wrongly, and you not even take into account that they have families? And then all we talk about in this country is about, is about broken homes and all this kind of crap. You ought to know because you're the expert at breaking them. Something needs to be done about this stuff. This is ridiculous. And this is what a just cause is working towards. And we will be working towards it until the day we die because something has to happen. Because we know that this injustice is going to continue unless there is a stop put to it, unless there is a light shine on it, and these people are seen for who they really are. And I completely the, agree the, with you. I think the, one of the most troubling things is everybody that we've reached out to, we, we always get, well, we don't have jurisdiction. We're not the responsible party. We're not the ones who can help you. Even when we went, like, to, you know, Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, the uh, CBC, the Judiciary Committee, nobody is taking responsibility saying, okay, that's something that we can look into. And we ask everywhere we go, okay, if you're not the one who looks into it, who is? Point us to the right. person. And all we're getting is this round-robin activity. Well, we're not the mm -hmm. ones. You need to go talk to this person. You need to talk to, you know, Senator or uh, Senator Lewis and, and, and uh, Senator uh, Congressman Conyers. They're the one over, you know, the civil, the civil rights and, and uh, you know, over the Judiciary Committee as far as the Congressional Black Caucus. They send you to somebody else or say this is not something that, that we can deal with. Then they say, well, go to your, your uh, local senator. Go to Senator Bennett. He won't do anything. And they just keep sending us around and around in circles. And we're trying to figure out who is the person who's responsible, who has jurisdiction, because we aren't asking anybody to interrupt with the, the judicial process. We're saying do an investigation, find out where this missing transcript is. That's all we're asking for. Do an investigation. Mm -hmm. Tell the court report. Tell the court reporter. Come up with the missing transcript. Nobody wants to do it. Nobody wants to take that to task and say either you come up with it or we're going to file criminal charges against you. So what we, what we did, we filed a civil lawsuit. 
Well, the same U.S. Attorney's Office in Denver, when we went to them about the uh, missing transcript, they said, well, that's not in our jurisdiction. We can't do anything about that. Uh, you know, why don't you sue the, the court reporter and, you know, take her to civil court? We said, okay, we'll do that. Well, when we sue her as a just cause, because a just cause is the one who paid, uh, you know, about $10,000 for the transcript and then a piece of it is missing, when we sue her, wow. who comes back and says, well, we're going to represent her now? The same U.S. Attorney's Office who said we don't have jurisdiction, all of a sudden they're coming to her rescue, saying we'll represent her because she was acting under the uh, under you know her 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 federal job. No, she wasn't. She was acting as an independent contractor. Independent. When we said mm-hmm. right, independent, saying we want the transcript, you transcribe it and give it to us. It's available to the public supposedly from the time the case is over. They come to her rescue, saying we're going to take her back under our umbrella. And so you're like, okay, this is the most crooked crap on the planet because. At one point, when we're looking for help from you, it's not under your jurisdiction. You can't help mm-hmm. us do anything. You can't even speak to it. Then when we go after her, we say, we're going to protect her. So where is the oversight against this, uh, against the U.S. Attorney's Office hiding all of this and, and uh, you know, making provision for the judge to continue to break the law? We and, and just want somebody to take the responsibility to say, why are you breaking the law and you're going to be held accountable for it? And as Cliff stated earlier, uh, as far as, you know, where where is the real conspiracy here? <laughs> you know, when you look at this, and like I stated earlier, there is time after time after time situations uh, that have, have arisen in this case where it is all about keeping the, uh, keeping the IRP-6 uh, locked up it's about protecting the actions that uh, that occurred in that in that courtroom, actions that were errors on the part of the judge, actions that were errors on the part of the uh, prosecution, act, actions that were errors on the part of the court reporter. And so, you know, uh, and it's so clearly obvious that someone is trying to protect someone, but it mm-hmm. should not be at the expense of other mm-hmm. people's freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when rights have been violated, and, and as uh, Ethel stated earlier, when you have these are family men, these are husbands, these are brothers, these are sons. You know, uh, these are gentlemen who uh, are ethical businessmen, and and then also Christian men. I mean, they are very active in their church, and so you know, why is this not just prosecution but persecution yeah. occurring against these gentlemen? And uh, but when it all breaks loose. Uh, you know, uh, they're going to be running for cover like roaches in, you know, when you turn the light on in the kitchen, of you know, course. because uh, they, they are going to want to protect themselves, and it is going to break loose. And you asked earlier, you know, about how much time they had and when do we expect them to get out. Well, Cliff stated how much time they were sentenced to, but we feel very confident and we uh, believe that, uh, that the appeal will uh, come through, even though Colorado has the most – ridiculous rules as far as no time limit, uh, we believe that these types of things like, uh, you know, speaking with you and speaking with others uh, will help to uh, uh, accelerate that process. How can those that are listening get involved and in, in help, you know, to spread awareness and to spread what, what's going on with the case? How can others get involved? Well, uh, I'll answer that by stating that we have two websites that are set up. One is for a just cause. A Just Cause website is going to give you general information about a Just Cause, although we do have space dedicated to the IRP-6. 
The website for Just Cause is www.a-justcause.com. Again, that's www.a-justcause.com. We also have a website that's set up specifically for the IRP6, and it is www.freetheirp6, that's the number six, dot O-R-G. Again, freetheirp6.org. And then from there, from either one of those websites, you can launch out to Facebook pages. We have a whole team of volunteers, a great group of people, uh, about 30 volunteers uh, that have Twitter accounts. Uh, just, just do a search on uh, IRP6, and you'll find someone. Uh, you can even follow either, any one of us on Twitter. And then also uh, Ethel, as part of reaching out to the, to the media, and she mentioned as far as reaching out to Eric Holder's office, that we have uh, campaigns, email campaigns going. Uh, we have phone campaigns going as far as reaching out to the Attorney General's office. We'd like to give out the phone number for Attorney General Eric Holder in Washington, D.C. That number is 202-514-2003. Again, it's 202-514-2003. We also like to just make a plea to the listening audience that, you know, people know people. Uh, there might be someone in your family, there might be someone in your circle, there might be someone in your Facebook circle uh, that you know who can help to uh, facilitate uh, getting some corrective action in this situation. You may know Eric Holder directly, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, give him a call. Say, hey, uh, Mr. Holder or Eric, uh, take a look at this case. There is a gross injustice going on here. And not just Mr. Mr. Holder, but reach out to the Congressional Black Caucus. Reach out to the judiciary. It's the grassroots effort and the movement of people through these types of processes is what's going to uh, uh, execute change and bring about change in these types of situations. Not just for the IRP6, because there are cases all over the country that fall into this category. And that's where, again, I say we were so naive to it. And that's why a just cause, even after the IRP6 are exonerated and after they are home, they have even made a commitment to continue the work of a just cause because we recognize that this is not an anomaly. This is a real problem. This is a systemic problem that's in our nation that needs to be corrected for who uh, uh, make sure that these types of cases are not heard. They don't want it to be exposed. But we have to be the voices for those who are behind bars because once people go behind bars, unless they have an organization, a strong uh, support system like uh, a Just Cause or, or, right. or a strong family support system, their voices go unheard, even mm -hmm. though they can sit there uh, innocent, not guilty of anything except for the fact that they fell to a corrupt system that found them guilty, but no one is out there to speak on their behalf, and so that's why Just Cause will, uh, will continue. And, and also with that, um, Sai, um, people need to understand that, um, as it was said earlier, this, this can happen to anybody, anybody. It, it doesn't matter who you are. So, so the fact is people don't need to just sit back and wait until it happened to them or wait until it happens to one of their loved ones. They need to, 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 to be fighting, you know, because it can happen to them or because it can happen to, to, to their loved ones. And by picking up, the, picking up the phone, dialing Eric Holder's number, just say, uh, take a look at wrongful convictions or, or, or take a look at free the IRP6 or just free the IRP6. 
I mean, it, it, all of them every day. You know, something has to happen. When 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 they get tired of, of, of people calling them and everything, somebody is going to do something. And, and, and we don't stick together on anything. That is that is our biggest problem. We don't come together on anything. We're one race of people that do not come together on jack. You know, if you do, it's for about five minutes, and then that is it. You never hear about it anymore. I mean, even looking at the Trayvon Martin situation, that's already just about died down. People just about forgotten about it, you know, and stuff like that. But you don't forget about people that you love. You don't forget about situations that could occur to your own family. You know what I'm saying? It, somebody yeah. has to do something. And if we don't do something now, th- uh, later on, it'll be too late. It'll be too right. late. The prisons are running over. The prisons are running over with, with, with not just, you know, African-American people, but we are the main ones that the prisons are running over with, mm-hmm. you know. And how many people have been wrongly convicted? How many people are sitting there wrongly convicted? How many people they've exactly. executed that have been wrongly convicted? Somebody exactly. has to fight for these people, and a just mm-hmm. cause is going to give these people a voice. And this is why I it was so important to me to have you all on the show because I, I put myself in your shoes. I put my family in the same predicament that those six gentlemen are going through. What if I have to fight for my husband, my son? You know, we can't sit back and watch it happen and then, like you said, say something after they've done 30, 40 years in prison. I mean, your voice is mute after they've done the time. You should have been vocal in the beginning. And I'm I'm glad that I have this platform to to help not only people that have been wrongfully accused, but to give them a voice, to give you guys a voice to my 200,000-plus listeners. Because someone knows, like you said, someone knows something and someone that could possibly help. And I I thank you. I thank you for coming on the show, Ethel, Sam, and um, Cliff, for sharing this this. The story is, I can't think of another, it's crazy. This it's is crazy. unheard of. Yeah, I, I was telling Olivia that this, when I read everything and I did research on my own and I was telling my husband, this looks like something out of a third world country. This happens in other countries that don't have a structured judicial system. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And I, after researching, I researched for a couple of weeks to see, you know, exactly what was going on. And I'm thinking, you know, and I'm I'm watching you guys on Twitter, you know, and you guys are promoting on Twitter and and putting the word out. And it seems like people don't want to get involved because either they're afraid or they just don't want to be involved because it doesn't have anything to do with them. It don't affect them. Yeah, exactly. Those are the two reasons people don't get involved. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, also um, with you know, you have mentioned you know other countries and stuff, and and our country is it, 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 we're good about getting into somebody else's business. We're good oh, about getting yeah. into another country's affairs and stuff like that, and how they're treating their people. Look at your own jackass country. You are ruining mm-hmm. your own people. What are you talking about somebody else's country? Mm-hmm. How is that? I completely agree. I agree with you a thousand percent. And whatever I can do on my side, like I told Olivia, I'll promote and post things on my Facebook page, Twitter page, and the Side Effect Radio Show fan page to help you guys spread awareness. And please, please, please follow me. Keep me updated 
with everything and, you know, what's occurring so I can continue to spread because we can't let this die because this could be me behind bars and I would want someone fighting for me. That's right. Absolutely. And, we again, we appreciate it, Cy. Uh, we will pass on, you know, the guys, we're in communication with them constantly. Their families come and visit them uh, every week. There's several other of us who go and visit them every week uh, or and every other week. And so they love to hear type of support and love to hear the positive reports uh, that there are people out there who care. Right. There are people out there who are yeah. joining in the fight uh, for, for justice. And so we will pass this on, and we appreciate it, Simon. Thank you all for tuning into the show tonight. I do appreciate you. Also, thank you to my guests, A Just Cause. You can also catch them on Blog Talk Radio with Speak the Truth Tuesday, with Coast to Coast Radio on Blog Talk, with Sam and Cliff at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And you can follow the Sci Effect Radio Show on Instagram and Twitter at I Am Sci. And please, by all means, like the Sci Effect fan page on Facebook by going to www.facebook.com forward slash the Sci Effect. Until next time, continue to spread peace and love. Mwah. <laughs>